Do you want to do what we do? Literally this, podcasting, editing audio on your own time, making fun little episodes about your favorite topics? Well, we can help you out. Sound Studio 4 is an app for Mac that lets you record music, create sound effects, digitize old records and tapes, or even create your own podcast, like George said. Just don't make it about sound. We're kind of already doing that. And it's pretty okay. <laughs> sound Studio 4 is the latest version of their software. It's been around since 1999, and this current version has bells and whistles to help make whatever audio project you want. You can find Sound Studio 4 in the Mac App Store or at macsoundstudio.com. Ignition sequence start. Everything. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. I'm George Drake Jr. And this is Everything Sounds. You're going to ask questions? Mm-hmm. or Oh, okay. That's George. Not to be confused with our George. Me, George. You, George. Right. <laughs> Back in the 1940s, George's parents hadn't even been married a decade, but they knew they wanted to start a family together. So his father bought a piece of lakeside property north of Chicago. The property was purchased in 1949, and the house was completed, and we moved in on April 25th, 1952. Ultimately, his parents started that family that they wanted, and by the 1960s, they had four teenage children. And for George, being a teenager and growing up on the lake was ideal. My parents would always have a group of their friends every Sunday come down, and that's how I learned to water ski. One of their friends taught me. They had a boat that was owned by two other couples, along with my mom and dad. Um, when they traded in that boat, they bought another one uh, by themselves, and that was the boat we used as teenagers. Oftentimes, they'd come back from school, and George and his brothers would get on the boat and water ski together. And one of those brothers would water ski before they'd even go to school in the mornings. That same brother, well, he did something even crazier. Uh, One of my brothers skied every month uh, for one year, one day a month, uh, even when it was there was ice on the beach and around the boathouse, he chopped the ice to get the boat out and would send my cousin out and a sunfish to take movies of him skiing by the ice flows. The lake and its beaches were more than just a body of water to them. It was their backyard. It was their playground. Each year, they waited for the temperature to rise just for boating to begin again. So we thoroughly enjoyed it up until about, I think it was the summer of 1967. George got a job working on a Schlitz beer truck, and he had to get up early every morning to make deliveries. One day, he put on his uniform, went downstairs for breakfast, and he looked out at the water, and he saw something that he'd never seen before. A shimmering line of silver, uh, probably about 10 yards wide, Uh, going as far north and south as I could see from the kitchen and didn't know what in the world it was, but I had to leave. And so when I came home that night, uh, I found out what it was. You know, it was just millions of dead alewives. An alewife is a type of herring. It's pretty small, actually, only about seven inches long. 
And alewives aren't native to Lake Michigan, but they arrived in the 1930s. They had one predator, the trout, but the trout population was wiped out by their predator, the sea lamprey. And if you haven't seen one of these, it's not really a fish. It's basically like an eel mixed with the sarlacc pit from Star Wars. They're scary. (laughs) Nerd alert. (laughs) This is where it gets a little tricky, though. The sea lamprey don't eat alewives. So the alewife population ballooned. And when they reached the end of their lifespans, like they did in 1967, they began to die off. It wasn't a big deal at first, but after a day or two of them drying out on the beach in the hot July sun, it started to become a big deal. I mean, we couldn't even walk along the sidewalks in front of the house uh, along the road without just being overcome by the smell. I mean, the smell just uh, would go for many blocks inland. They decided it was time to do the logical thing, get rid of the fish. But you can't just throw hundreds upon hundreds of fish into your trash cans. So they devised a plan. We ended up raking up uh, the fish on our beach, putting them into piles and digging holes. But there were so many of them, you ended up almost not having enough space to dig the holes. Um, you poured the, what we did then was poured the fish in, put, I think it was lye or lime, one of the two, on top of them, and then buried them. And then they would you know, decompose over time. The downtown beaches were cleaned using tractors and bulldozers. So to alleviate the alewife issue, it was decided to introduce Chinook salmon into the environment. Not a native to Lake Michigan, but a natural predator to alewives. And it worked. For a little while. This particular kind of salmon is pretty popular with sport fishers, so their numbers started to decline. And in the early 1990s, George bought the house from his parents, and about a decade later, the alewives died off again, and it left the beaches with that silver shimmer and awful smell. Instead of using chemicals to dissolve the fish, he decided to burn them using an oil and gas mixture and bury the ashes. Good news is they are, these were the only two waves when it, that hit. You know, one in 67 and they won a, the second one in the late 90s or the early 2000s. Other than that, there have been maybe a dead half dozen or so on the beach, uh, but nothing uh, of the magnitude uh, of those two big waves of fish. No one is certain how many fish actually washed ashore in any given year, but there is speculation that it was in the millions and possibly even the billions. George's own experience led him to think the same. Based upon what I saw in the water, and if every other person's beach was as badly hit as ours, um, yeah, it had to be in the millions. Thanks, Dad. No problem, George. Happy to do it. Inserting the salmon into Lake Michigan wasn't the first time that a species was introduced into an environment with a very specific purpose in mind. But sometimes there are examples where the species were introduced accidentally. London is actually one of those cities where that has happened. And for some reason, the population thrived rather than dying off within the first few months. And that's where our good friend and Everything Sounds contributor Max Owens comes in. 
Hello, this is Max Owens, and this is the sound of my garden in West London, England, United Kingdom. Here in British suburbia, we have all kinds of sounds. You can hear the motorway off in the distance, planes flying overhead, apples falling from trees, and of course, the clinking of cups of tea. This is England, after all. Neighbours will be enjoying the pop music of the age, and foxes will be fighting over the remains of a Sunday roast. Alongside all of this is the constant soundtrack of the birds, ever present from dusk till dawn. Pigeons, blackbirds, magpies, and of course... What on earth was that? Ever since I can remember, there has been an enigma in London soundscape. That loud caw and a vivid flash of green. Parrots, or parakeets, ring-neck parakeets to be more specific, have invaded the greenery of London. But how did they get here? And why would London of all places provide them with the habitat they need to flourish? I needed to find someone who knows a little bit more about the city and its avian population. The typical bird soundtrack for London is of sparrows, starlings, and the flapping wings of pigeons taking off. That's probably the thing most people associate with London. But we've got a whole wealth of other birds that live here as well. Um, more than 200 species live in London, and that number's increasing. We're getting more exotic birds arriving. But we've still got that, uh, goldfinches and great tits and blue tits and all the usual mix that you would expect to find anywhere in the UK. I travelled to East London to meet Tim. I'm Tim Webb. I'm communications manager for the RSPB, which is the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. I'm based in London, and we specialise here in urban nature and trying to bring people and nature together. At the moment we're standing in the middle of Abney Park Cemetery in Hackney, East London. Uh, it's one of those big old Victorian cemeteries that's been overgrown and is now really a woodland nature reserve dotted with tombstones rather than a cemetery. This was a place where parakeets congregated in large numbers and Tim took me to one of their roosts. It could, as I mentioned a little while ago, you know, they do go off during the day, so this is one of their roosts. Um, so it could be that they've now gone off to go and get food for the day. I'm surprised there aren't a few around. (laughs) Um, They are about the size of a UK pigeon um, or um, an American robin. Um, They are bright green, um, very vivid green, lime green, um, usually with a red collar, if we're talking about the ringneck parakeets. Um, We've got other wild Um, escaped parakeets and and similar birds in the UK but the ones that dominate are the ringneck parakeets Um, you can't mistake the call once you've heard it it's a real sort of keening cry I was going to say a call um, but that sounds more like a magpie it's a real shriek I won't attempt to impersonate it Um, but I say once you've heard it you will, will never mistake it for anything else We have had um, a sudden explosion in the population of ringneck parakeets. Um, they started to appear in the papers about um, 10, 15 years ago um, in small numbers, and they slowly grew. They, they live in colonies. They like to be together. Um, we ended up with a very, very large um, colony at Isha Rugby Club in West London. Um, the club became famous for it. People would visit just to see the huge numbers of parakeets around the ground. It also became a bit of a problem because of all the droppings and the noise and the mess from the birds. Um, but that population reached a, a sort of maximum level and then suddenly dispersed. It, it spread all over London. We now have parakeets 
in every single borough in Greater London. But how did their population grow so substantially? And when did they first arrive? It started off very, very low. The first report I found of parakeets in the UK was in 1850 in some, some old written, handwritten diary notes. Um, so, yes, they've been here a long time. That was a single parakeet, probably brought over by a trader as an exotic pet and maybe escaped into the wild. Um, the numbers didn't seem to change much. There were occasional sightings since then. And then... In 1970s, 80s, um, we started to see the arrival of more and more. Um, they started to breed, still in small numbers. Um, and then about five, ten years ago, suddenly, I'm not sure what changed, whether it was the climate that became more um, comfortable for them or whatever, they suddenly exploded. Um, so we've had this huge expansion in the numbers. The British press has romanticised the parakeets to quite a large extent. I've read many stories in the papers of how they arrived and started to grow. These reports have ranged from a hurricane in the 80s which blew open cages and aviaries to Jimi Hendrix releasing them as a sign of peace and love. That last one is my personal favourite and I wanted to know if there was any truth to it. Um, there were stories of... Um some being released. There were a pair released by Jimi Hendrix on Carnaby Street in the 60s, you know, sort of birds for peace thrown into the air, a male and a female. Some people say the whole population started with those two. There are rumours of them starting from escapees from a film set in Twickenham um, in, in West London again, from the, the film set of The African Queen, the Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn film. Um, whatever started it, we're not sure, but they're here and they're here to stay now. So romanticising aside, what is the reality of these peace-loving, psychedelic rock birds? Is there a more simple explanation? Or was it a mixture of these urban legends that brought them here? I think it is probably a combination of all of these things. Jimi Hendrix did release a pair of parakeets, um, and there were some parakeets brought in for film sets in West London, and there were parakeets that seemed to have escaped from uh, shipping containers at Heathrow Airport uh, mid-transit. So, yeah, I think they all added. Um, they, I think they sparked anything in particular. Um, I think it's probably more climate and food related. They are from um, the Indian subcontinent. They, they survive in the foothills and up the sides of the Himalayas. So they're very tolerant uh, species. They can cope with extreme um, changes in um, climate. So the UK climate isn't that much of a challenge for them, really. We don't get incredibly cold temperatures as you would on the, the Himalayas. And we don't get incredibly hot ones like you do in Delhi, but they survive there. I think it's probably more linked with climate change. Um, I think something changed Tim there. told me something there must have been some kind of tipping point where urban London suddenly became the perfect environment for the parakeets. He believes climate change could be the cause, but a few degrees change in London's climate doesn't seem like it would be a big deal for birds that are used to living on the sides of mountains. However, seasonal changes have a significant impact on the survival of parakeets' eggs. This could be their tipping point. And tip they have. After finding their feet in the city, there's very little that stands in their way. In the UK, there are very few predators because they're not a, a natural species for us here in the UK. There isn't a natural predator. We have got some birds like um, hawks, peregrine falcons, um, sparrowhawks maybe some owls that might have a go, um, but they're not at the level that they're going to be able to control the population and bring it down. Um, cats, I don't think, would be able to cope with them. Squirrels might compete in the trees, but um, again, parakeets have very sharp talons and very strong beaks. Um, they are well defended, so um, finding natural predators is going to be a problem too. Food-wise, there's no problem here. They eat all sorts of things. Um, they're not sort of specialists, so they'll eat berries, they'll eat insects, they'll eat seeds. Um, that's not going to restrict their, their spread at all. Um, it could prove to be their downfall, 
um, because they can strip a field, a crop, um, within minutes. They'll descend en masse and if a farmer loses his crop he's going to start complaining and the government will start acting. Something will be done to control their numbers then. In India the parakeets are seen as pests for this very reason. But for people in suburban London such as myself, who have no contact with agriculture beyond the potted plant we sometimes forget to water, the birds are a glamorous guest that it would be a great shame to see go. People are very divided by parakeets. Um, they, the initial reaction is, wow, what, what's that noise? What's that bright, colourful bird? Um, isn't it amazing? And then you start to get a few of them together and they start making a lot of noise early in the morning as the sun rises and people don't like them because they're woken up. Um, people are actually quite um, violently split at times about them. I know people that will rant and rave and demand that something be done immediately to, to eradicate them. Um, other people will say, no, leave them, they're fantastic, they're a great exotic um, addition to our, our native landscape. They like living in and around people, so they are focusing around um, towns and cities. Um, and there are occasions where, um, like all parakeets, if anyone's ever kept a parakeet or a similar bird, they'll know that when they get into their teenage years, they have this sort of um, mad period. Uh, it's uh, quite often called mobbing, where they will just throw a wobbly and, and become really destructive. Um, so if you've got a load of them together at a similar age, it can create problems. And there was one case where they completely stripped the shingles on a listed building, an old church recently restored. All of the roof was taken off by these mobbing parakeets as they descended on it and just parted. Um, things like that um, make them enemies of the state. <laughs> there has been numerous calls for a culling of London's parakeets over the years. To protect our native species, our crops, and to stop them partying on shingled roofs. But how could you possibly target one species in a sea of birds? Controlling them, however, is going to be a major problem. Um, they're very difficult to reach. You can't just start putting out poison for birds uh, in the environment because it's not targeted. Um, you can't go around shooting them because they're living in our towns and cities. It's really difficult to shoot something the size of a parakeet in a town or city safely. Virtually impossible, I would suggest. Um, the RSPB is not in favour of any um, forms of control that involve lethal control. Um, how the government respond to this is up to them. They are looking at it and they've got scientists working on it at the moment. But I don't think we're at the point where we will be having an enforced control. Um, I'm, I'm not sure which way I'm going at the moment. I still quite like them because their shriek makes people stop in their tracks. It's like hearing, I don't know, a, a baby crying. You can't ignore the call. You, you instantly recognise this as something out of place. You stop and you listen and then you look and you're suddenly aware of wildlife around you in a, in a way that a lot of people aren't normally as they wander the streets of London. London isn't the only city to have a non-indigenous population of feral parrots. A large number of species can be seen across Europe and America. Our friends the ring parakeets have made homes in cities across the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, South Africa, Israel, the Emirates and of course the United States. I hear the San Gabriel Valley is the best place to go and see them if you find yourself in California. Is there anything barring their spread or will we start to see them in even more cities? Nature is forever changing. It's not a static thing. A lot of people think when you talk about conservation that we are holding things in aspect. We're, we're not. It's changing around us all the time. Like the, um, in the UK, 50 years ago, we never had a collared dove in the UK. Um, they moved across Europe along with, along with the panzers as, as the German army invaded Europe. The collared doves seemed to follow, but where the panzers stopped, the collared dove continued. It's now colonising Scotland. It's still travelling north. 
Um, and it's so common now, we just accept it as a UK species. The house sparrow, the humble house sparrow in the UK is disappearing at an alarming rate. It's a species we're really worried about here in the UK. Um, but in in America, it's pest. It was introduced there. It's a non-native species, but survives and spreads there. Um, a lot of people hate them there and want them wiped out. Um, we're losing ours, so if they want to ship a few back this way, that would be amazing. So the parakeet story is by no means a unique one. As humans move around the planet and create connections between countries that would otherwise be isolated, animals are presented with the opportunity to find new homes. They'll provide us with exotic sites and, unfortunately, a new set of risks. There certainly is, yeah. Our cities can change quite drastically with um, the, the wildlife that lives in them. Um, we do have monkjack deer um, that live in London, and they um, can quite easily damage a lot of young trees. They'll um, destroy the bark around the, the base of the tree and that tree dies so they can change landscapes quite quickly and effectively um, we have got other species that are coming in and changing the landscape like um, some crayfish and some um, Chinese mitten crabs species like that that are destroying the, the river banks and that's causing problems for flood control exotic species moving in have a dramatic effect on an, uh, on an environment and we do need to monitor it. We're getting better at biosecurity on our borders. Um, we are improving. There's a recognition that we need to get even better to control it. But at the moment, nature is winning the battle. More and more species are coming across, more and more viruses, more insects, more amphibians. It's coming across thanks to the global trade we have. It, it hops on containers and ships and on trains and ends up in the UK and disperses. There's very little we can do to prevent that sort of action. Um, so we're seeing the spread of diseases now as well. It's affecting a lot of our trees. Um, it could be that London particular where we have limited range of tree species could be badly hit if we had something that took out all of the London plane trees for example that would be 14% of our tree cover taken out if they all went um, which would dramatically change our landscape and the species that live here and the soundtrack to our environment. So people all over the world should prepare themselves for a changing soundscape in their parks and skies. Who knows how long it will be until we hear the sounds of kangaroos bouncing through the Yosemite Valley or the piercing squawk of a golden eagle over East London. We, we might start hearing those sorts of things. Who knows? Um, black kites um, are a species that we're expecting to arrive very shortly from uh, Europe. Um, hoopoos are another bird that we're expecting to see. Um, they're managing to make the, the leap over the English Channel now um, thanks to the changing climate. So who knows what we will hear in the near future. I'm not holding out hopes for a golden eagle. Um, but you never know what will happen. <laughs> I'm Max Owens. Thanks to Max Owens for all of his work on this week's show. You can listen to more of his work and find out more about the London Parakeets at our website, everythingsounds.org. And while you're there, you can find links to our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Now, we've got all of our past shows on SoundCloud, so feel free to like and share your favorites and help spread the word. Or you can listen to them all in one big, long chunk. Whatever you want. Today's episode was sponsored by Sound Studio 4 by Felt Tip Inc. Sound Studio 4 for Mac lets you create podcasts, record audio, digitize your tapes and records, and create sound effects for your own projects. Information on all of the features at macsoundstudio.com or in the Mac App Store. Again, that's Sound Studio 4 for Mac. Everything Sounds is a part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. 
You can find our show and others, such as The Big Web Show, Decode DC, and This Is Actually Happening at muleradio.net. Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake Jr. 